Last year, a certain musical celebrity died. Her name was Nancy Griffith. She sang, oh, sort of a combination of country and western. I'm generally not drawn to country western music, but I liked a lot of what Nancy Griffith did. As I say, she passed away last year. And I recall when I first heard her album years ago, a friend of mine loaned an album. After I had unthinkingly kept it for about 15 years, he said, oh, just keep it and um, bought himself another one, and I always enjoyed listening to it, as did my wife. A few years ago, in fact, a number of years ago, I had a chance to hear her down in uh, Philadelphia. I remember very clearly, it was an outside venue, and I was sitting down on this sidewalk at Penn's Landing, and in the hour and a half before it started, people came more, crowds thickened, people stood a little closer, then a little closer, And finally, you had to stand, and you basically had to stand with your arms to your side because there was scarcely any room. A great number of people were drawn to her. A few years ago, I had a chance to hear her again, not live. I can't remember if it was online or or if it was on a new CD that she released. But whatever it was, I, I was excited about it. I saw the cover. I could hear the instruments start the song. It was that same sort of sound, the same beat, the same aura. And then she began to sing. And I realized that the years had ravished her voice somewhat. I guess her producers thought it was good enough still to produce and to sell. But although it was similar, had the same voice inflections, had the same manner and the same type of music, something was off and it was sad to see. What is true in music with an aging artist can also be true in religion. And that's exactly what our passage is about today, about religion that seems like it's the same familiar thing that we love, but that really it is far changed. We're reading from the book of First Kings. For those of you who have been here for a while, you may recall where we've been with that. The book of First Kings tells the story of the nation of Israel. King David, the great king who conquered Israel's enemies and made it a safe place to be. And then, um, all of a sudden, he had a son named Solomon who made it even greater and grander and who was given wealth and wisdom. And yet, he strayed from God. And because of his sins, God said that Solomon's son would lose the country. And so, in the days of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, We read that the nation of Israel split in two. The ten northern tribes retained the name Israel. The southern two tribes retained the name Judah in the south. Jerusalem was where God was worshipped. It was in Judah. But now we had two different countries, both of them the Jews, both of them the people of God, but of a very different stripe. We come now to 1 Kings chapter 12, where we have been reading the story of, of a man named Jeroboam, whom God used to rebel against Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and split the country in two. Now the country is split. 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 25. Then Jeroboam fortified the city of Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and he lived there. And from there he went out and he built up Peniel. Now Jeroboam thought to himself, The kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David, that is, to the family line, the dynasty of David down in south in Jerusalem. 
If these people go up to offer the sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they'll kill me and return to King Rehoboam. So after seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this thing became sin. And the people went even as far as Dan to worship the one there. Now Jeroboam built shrines on high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. He instituted a festival on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the festival held in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. This he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves he had made. And at Bethel, he also installed priests at the high places he had made. On the 15th day of the eighth month, a month of his own choosing, he offered sacrifices on the altar he had built at Bethel. So he instituted the festival for the Israelites and went up to the altar to make offerings. Now, have you ever noticed that depending upon which channel you may watch, the news will cover one topic more than another channel will? Focus more on one particular thing that happened than another? Well, that's what happens here. It's quite interesting to see the way the author of the book of First Kings, what he focuses on when he begins now to describe the reign of this Jeroboam who broke away from the tribe of Judah where God's temple was. We read here that Jeroboam strengthened his new country. The first way he did it was he fortified two cities. It says that he fortified the city of Shechem, which was up at the north. This is where he was coronated, where he had been made king. This is where the citizens broke with Judah. I think he thought, well, my goodness, here is where the revolution happened. This is where we all rebelled. And so the citizens of Israel would have patriotic feelings about Shechem. I suppose it would be much like the American colonies when we started breaking away from uh, England, thought about Boston with great patriotic feelings, and that would be a great place for a capital because this is where it all happened. Last, next, he, he fortified a city named Peniel or Penuel because it was to the east of the Jordan River. It was a place to probably keep people from the east from coming into the country. It's a wise thing to do. It was on a major caravan route, strategically wise. But notice that there's only one verse in this chapter about what he did religiously, even though he's the king now of a significant country. The focus is on the second thing he did to strengthen his new country. Here's what he did. We read that Jeroboam was afraid, even though he had a bigger country than the country of Judah below, although Judah had an awful lot of people, even though he had 10 tribes and the nation of Judah only had two of the tribes of Israel, he knew the law of Moses. He knew that the law of Moses, the Bible, had required that three times a year, everyone in the nation of Israel, at least all the men, representing their families, wives and children could go if they were able, must travel to Jerusalem for a certain feast. And he thought to himself, now I know what's going to happen. When all the people in my new northern country of Israel travel to Jerusalem, they're going to see the splendor of Solomon's temple that still remains. You may recall that King Rehoboam in the south, his dad was Solomon, 
And Solomon had this enormous temple. He had this enormous array of chariots and horses and wealth and buildings and palaces. It was stunning to the eyes to go to Jerusalem and almost anywhere in a major city in Judah. He says, I know what's going to happen if these people go down there. And so they're going to start wishing for the good old days. Should we return to Jerusalem? Should we return to King Rehoboam? Now, you recall that God had sent a prophet to Jeroboam before he became king of the north and said, listen, I'm going to give you 12, 10 tribes. And if you will follow my commandments, I will give you a sure and settled dynasty. But that wasn't enough for Jeroboam. He's scared. He's got to take matters into his own hand. And he has a decision before him. Do I follow the path of faith that God told me I would rule and I have a dynasty and that dynasty would be safe? Or do I need to use my human logic to figure out how to make things safe? And Jeroboam opted for the latter. So he decided what these people need is a new religion. Now, his motivation was not religious. It was purely political. I don't think it was a deeply religious man at all. But he's thinking what this population needs is a new religion. And they need something that is grand. And they need something that's like the temple in Jerusalem that's visible, that they can see, because they're used to going to a temple where they see certain things. And so, deep in the recesses of his own mind, he begins to concoct what the new worship is going to look like. He's going to reshape the entire religious life of that country. He must be wise in doing this. So he thinks to himself, well, the new religion has to be new enough so that our people in the north clearly break from the old religion in the south. I've got to have that in order to secure my throne. But the new religion ought to be familiar enough so it doesn't feel bizarre to people, so they see some things that remind them of the old and make them somewhat comfortable. And so here's how he went about founding a new religion. We read in the Bible that the God of Israel had determined how the people were to worship. And Joabim said, we need to change that. The way the God of Israel had said how the people were to worship was that they were to worship God as invisible. That is, they were to never make an image of God. No matter how grand they thought he was and how grand an image they could make, it could never be as grand as he was. And by having an image, they would start thinking lower of God than they would if they just realized that he was invisible and incomprehensible and beyond them infinitely. And so Mount Sinai, when the Israelites were gathered under Mount Sinai and received the Ten Commandments, the second commandment was God saying, you shall not make for yourself an image to worship. And later, Moses had told them the same thing. He had said in Deuteronomy 4, Israelites, don't you remember that the Lord spoke to you from Mount Sinai out of the fire? And when he spoke, you heard the voice I'm sorry, you heard the sound of words, but you saw no form. There was only a voice, an invisible God, not to be worshipped with visible images. But now Jeremiah thinks, I've got to change that. And so what he does is make two calves of gold. I take it, most people take it probably, they're probably made of wood and they're plated with gold. But in either case, they're very impressive to see. They're meant to be signs of the divine presence. And, and the word calves in our text is used in a masculine way. It's not just any calf. It's a bull calf, a, a male calf. It's supposed to be a picture of strength and virility and majesty. He says this will impress the people. 
Now notice language in verse 28. He says, Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Now that's fascinating. When he says, Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt, does that ring a bell with anyone here? Well, my goodness. Back when Israel first left Egypt, when they gathered a month later at Mount Sinai, when God gave them the Ten Commandments, but Moses was up on the mountain for 40 days and they wonder where he was. Moses is up there talking to God somewhere. Maybe he's dead. Maybe he's lost. Who cares? The people had required that Aaron, the high priest, make them gods. So Aaron collected their golden earrings and jewelry. He melted it down and he made a golden calf. And then the people said, here, O Israel, are your gods. Now, what's happening is Jeroboam is deliberately quoting that passage. He's doing something totally new, worshiping the God of Israel in an orthodox way, uh, was demanded to be invisible. He's worshiping God in a visible way. But he's also using historic words because he's quoting a time in Israel's history that he's going to latch on to. I think the idea is this. When he says, here Israel are your gods, and there's a golden calf at two different cities, well, it's going to sound at least somewhat familiar. It's as if they're saying, look, Folks, the, the worship of God through the form of a bull has some precedent there. Now, of course, Jeroboam is going to conveniently forget to remind the people that they were struck dead by the Lord, many of them, because of the worship of the golden calf. He's saying something along these lines. I think Dale Ralph Davis catches it well when he says, I- I'm merely picking up on a bit different faith tradition than, uh, than you're used to. Um, time was when Israel's faith was broader and more inclusive. And not so narrow and so restrictive as it's become down in the south under Rehoboam. As David said, Jeroboam was saying, what we're doing here is not apostasy, it's diversity. It's a good thing. And so, a visible God is made into an idol, which is made into a false God. Now, there are any number of writers on the book of 1 Kings, in fact, I would say perhaps the majority, who think that what Jeroboam was doing was truly trying to worship the true God, Jehovah, just in a different way. One of the reasons for that is because of the word God. Here are your gods, O Israel. Most of you are probably familiar that the word Elohim is the primary word in the Bible when it just mentions God. And uh, yet the word Elohim is a plural And so you could translate it, here are your gods who brought you out of Egypt, or here is your God who brought you out of Egypt. If it's the latter, it means that Jeroboam was trying to get the people to worship Jehovah, but doing it in a way that Jehovah forbidden, that is, through the use of calves. The idea would be this, that often ancient deities were pictured, and you can still see it in monuments today and so forth, the standing on the back of a bull. And therefore, since Jehovah is invisible, Maybe what Jeroboam was doing was making a bull, and he's picturing the invisible God standing on the back of the bull in appropriate and respectful manner. That's what many people think of. And uh, the idea there is that, that it's truly the worship of Jehovah, just done a little bit differently. Well, that may be true, but when it says, here are your gods who brought you out of Egypt, the word brought is plural which gives high credence to the idea that he was truly talking about gods, not 
God. The reason Elohim, God, is plural is because it's probably, in Hebrew, you does this all the time, it's a plural of majesty. God, who is so great, we speak of him in the plural, possibly even indicating before the Trinity was made clear, the Trinity behind them all. But no, I think you have to say that uh, Jeroboam was dealing in idols deliberately. And one of the things that confirms that is later in the book of Second Chronicles, chapter eleven fifteen, it talks about the calf idols and the goat idols that Jeroboam made. So by this time, he's really showing his true colors. And in verse 32, it says that he sacrificed not to God in front of the calves, but he sacrificed to the calves he had made. This means then that Jeroboam is worshiping other gods. And if some of the people associated with Jehovah, who cares? That's fine, as long as they stay up here up north with me. You see his confusion. You see his deception. You see how evil this whole thing is. In summary then, Jehovah had determined the manner in which he would be worshipped. And he said it will never be through images because they pull down our imagination regarding God to make him at a lower level. And this is exactly what Jeroboam violated. But Jehovah had not only determined the manner of worship that Jeroboam went against, but Jehovah had determined the place of worship. You may recall, if you've ever read through the Old Testament, particularly the first five books of the Old Testament, which are called the Law of Moses, you may have read that that God had said in Deuteronomy 11, be careful not to sacrifice your burnt offerings anywhere you please. Offer them only at the place that the Lord your God will choose in one of your tribes. The Bible says that it is in Jerusalem that God chose to place his name. That is, everything that's true about him, he will make come to the fore and be represented and be honored in Jerusalem only. Well, Jeroboam thought, well, forget this. He said in verse 28, it's much too much for you all to have to travel all the way down to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel. One of them is in Bethel. One of them is in Dan. And this had certain benefits for Jeroboam to do this. The first one is this. Of course, it made worship more convenient for the people of the north. As I say, the the calves were in the extreme north and in the extreme south of Israel, so everybody had access to it one direction or another. Nobody from the north had to travel all the way down to Jerusalem to worship. And as for Bethel and having a calf there, well, my goodness, Bethel was on the main road from the north to the south. The pilgrims had always taken going down to worship at Jerusalem. And so while they passed Bethel, They're more liable to just stop there and do church there rather than have to go all the way another probably 10, 15 miles, 10, 11 miles. And also the reason it was a a convenient worship is because we read that Jeroboam also built high places for the people, multiple high places. By that, we mean this. The Canaanites had generally worshipped on a hill when they can find it. If they can't find it, they would worship under a large tree. The idea is to give the feeling, the aura of something great and grand of of the God that they're worshiping. And so these lesser shrines, these hills where people worshiped, which God totally forbade them to do, we might call them, they weren't the big temples at Bethel and Dan. They were, we might say, chapels, sort of um, uh, worship for between the high and holy days. On the high and holy days, we'll go to Bethel or Dan and have big time worship. Another benefit 
Jeroboam saw in creating a different place of worship was that the two cities he took, Dan and Bethel, were places that had deep tradition for the people of Israel. They would be drawn to them. It wouldn't be like, I don't know, picking Sneaky Falls, Idaho to put a temple there. No, no, it was something far more significant. The citizens already, I say, were drawn to these two towns. For instance, the town of Dan. Back in Judges 18, we read that when the Israelites conquered the Canaanites and moved into Israel, eventually, as they got into idol worship, it was a grandson, or perhaps a great-grandson, of Moses himself who established idol worship up in Dan. He worshipped God, and he was related to the great Moses. What could be so bad about that? And when it comes to setting up a calf in Bethel, well, my goodness, it's even better. When Abraham had left Mesopotamia and had first come to the land of Canaan, very early on, it says that he made an altar to the Lord God in Bethel. So it had an aura about it. Our forefather, George Washington, slept here. Abraham worshipped here. That's the idea behind it. And our forefather, Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes, my goodness, do you remember one time reading in Genesis when he was fleeing from his murderous brother? He got there one night and he, he slept, used a stone for a pillow, and as he slept, he had a dream. And he dreamed that he saw a stairway that went all the way up to heaven. Angels came down from it. Angels went up on it. And the Lord God spoke to him there. And so thus, it was a holy sight for the Israelites Abraham, Jacob, they worshipped here. What's so bad about us worshipping here? And so Jeroboam made two ancient sanctuaries into national shrines where his alternate religion would take place. How can Abraham and Jacob's descendants go wrong worshipping in a place where their ancestors worshipped and encountered God? A number of people have observed this. So the result, that's exactly where most of the people went. And verse 30 says, this thing became a sin for them. Now, why is this important? Well, because Jerusalem, God said, was the one place of sacrifice. There were offered the proper animals. There they were offered in a proper manner. There they were offered on the altar that God himself chose. It it shows that ultimately, God is only going to accept one sacrifice, one kind of sacrifice in a single place. This was meant to be pictorial eventually of the sacrifice of Jesus at a single time and a single place by the right person offering for our sins. And that was a sacrifice God accepted. And Jeroboam wanted nothing to do with God's restrictions. Now, a third way in which Jeroboam varied from the religion Jehovah had established is that Jehovah had determined the people who were supposed to lead worship. You may recall that if you read the law of Moses, that the priest who offered sacrifice could only come from the tribe of Levi. There were 12 tribes, but only the Levites and only a certain family within the Levites could be priests. This is what God commanded. But Jeroboam had other ideas. Verse 31 says, Jeroboam appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they weren't Levites. And he installed them. In fact, if you skip forward to to chapter 13, verse 33, it says, anyone who wanted to become a priest... He consecrated for the high places. And the book of Second Chronicles make clear what you have to pay in order to become a priest. Whoever comes with a young bull and seven rams may become a priest of what are not gods. You can get the idea then. As long as you're willing to lay out some cash, bring some animals to enhance the worship of 
Jeroboam's new temples, hey, you're in. You get the frock, you, you, you get the clerical collar, uh, you get the gold chain to wear around your neck, and you, sir, are big-time clergymen. Even worse, when God had commanded that only Levites could be priests, Jeroboam himself acted not just as any priest, Jeroboam acted as the high priest of Israel had acted, because we read in verse 33, he offered sacrifices on the altar, probably to show that he's a devout worshiper himself. And I think the English Standard Version is is right here. When he translates it, he offered incense. This word can be used for regular sacrifices, but it's the vast majority of time used for the offering of incense. And only the high priest who was a Levite in Israel could offer the incense. So the fact that Jeroboam felt free to appoint leaders and priests from anyone he chose, it makes sense. It's no wonder that he would appoint himself as high priest. But God, I said, was choosy about who would be his priests. Because ultimately, generations later, there would only be one priest that would really count. And that's his son, offering the only sacrifice that really count. That was supposed to be pictured in Jerusalem. Jeroboam wanted nothing of it. It wasn't convenient. And another way that Jeroboam's religion varied from what God had set up is that Jehovah had determined the time of worship. He had determined a number of festivals, but one of the great festivals of Israel was the Feast of Ingathering, sometimes called the Feast of Booths, not B-O-O-Z-E, B-O-O-T-H-S. That's the idea. The idea is that people would take leaves from trees and build little shelters for themselves to remember when they had to live in tents out in the desert and to honor God from bringing them into the land. Well, Moses had commanded, back in the ball of Moses, that the Feast of Ingathering be celebrated on the seventh month, the 15th day of the year. But we read in verse 33 that Jeroboam established on the 15th day of the eighth month, and then the writer underlines, a month of his own choosing. He offered sacrifices at Bethel, and so he instituted the festival for the Israelites and went up to the altar to make offerings. In other words, he came to change it to suit himself. But it's interesting. He changed the month because we need a new religion, but he kept the day of the month, the 15th day of the month, because Israel was on a lunar calendar rather than a um, solar calendar. And the 15th day of the month was when there was the full moon. And so people, every time there was a full moon, were used to, in some way, being more religious and upon certain months going to sacrifices and having a festival. So he said, well, let's keep the full moon idea because they'll be in the mood for it then. It's new, but we'll keep the trappings of the old to make people feel like everything is okay. Now, why do these things matter? Here, I I just had a loss. There's so much we could say for several hours, but let me just take one or two. Alfred Edersheim puts it like this. He said, God ordained the Jewish religion as a religion of symbolism, every single thing in Jewish religion of the Old Testament had a meaning, a symbolism. It would take months to try to even work through all the symbolism of the Old Testament rituals, and we still wouldn't be able to do it. And I don't know that I understand them all. We all understand some of them. These symbols, these rituals, the things that God had commanded for religion, they all formed a unity. They were one of a piece. Nothing could be touched without ruining everything else. Orthodoxy, that is the right belief, the right practice, focused on a certain royal person 
a descendant of David on the throne, an atoning place, the altar, a burnt offering in Israel at the temple, sacrificing in the appropriate manner at an appropriate time. This religion was the very reason that God had Israel exist, to show the world what the worship of the true God was like in signs and symbols that would eventually come true in the form of Jesus Christ. And yet, all the kings in the Bible were wicked, who came from Israel and deviated from this. And of every single king of Israel that came after Jeroboam until the nation absolutely ended, with the exception of three, two of whom's reigns were very short and they worshipped Baal, every single wicked king of Israel, this is how it summarizes his life. Quote, And this king walked in the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. You see what he's doing? He's not only dragging himself to hell. He's not only dragging his people to hell. He is dragging to hell generations, hundreds of years after him by starting this religion that set people on the course away from the one true God. Now, that's what goes on in 1 Kings chapter 12. Does it have anything to do today? When's the last time you saw somebody worshiping a golden calf outside of a church in Morgantown or Birdsboro? Well, there's a lot of religion that's very much like this, only it has a modern feel to it. <clears throat> Have you ever heard the term when people would say, if you're talking about Christ, well, I, I, I'm spiritual, but, but I'm not religious. Does that ring a bell with anybody? What do they mean by that? I recently heard a sermon a few weeks ago when I was, I was not preaching. I went to a church I've been wanting to visit. It was a Presbyterian church I've been reading, and I heard Reverend Chris DeVitro talk, and he mentioned the following that I thought was a very good summary of what a lot of modern religion is about. He said there was a sociologist named Christian Smith who was interested in this common phrase, I'm spiritual but not religious, and he did an in-depth study on what people mean, what is their religion when they say that, and he said their religion is, um, you can probably describe it in about Five ways. So for the first slide, number one, people who are spiritual but not religious, they believe in a God exists who created and ordered the world and who watches over human life on earth. Well, except for the absence of a capital G, that's, that's, not, that's not too bad. Secondly, they believe that God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible. Yes to that and is taught by most of the world's religions. Okay, there's some overlap in ethics between true Christianity and, and other religions. Yeah, I guess we can buy that. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about one's self. Not so much. Here you see the beginning of the real diversion from the truth of the Bible and of genuine Christianity in spiritually-minded people. What God is all about is to make you happy. As C.S. Lewis once said, the, most people want to believe in a God who is a senile old gentleman in heaven whose only wish is that at the end of the, every day it could be truly said a good time was had by all. Yeah. Fourthly, spiritual but not religious people believe that God does not particularly need to be involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. 
That is, we retain God in order to pray to him from a foxhole, to pray to him when we're in a car accident, to pray to him when we're sick or when we're in trouble or when our country is at war. But really, other than that, we don't need him and he he doesn't need us and, and we just go our separate ways. And five, good people go to heaven when they die. This retains a belief in an afterlife. Some people who are spiritual but not religious don't believe in an afterlife. Most do, I think. Some form of an afterlife, they might define it differently, but the idea is you might want to call it heaven because it'll be good, it'll be better, hopefully, and this is what it's like. And do you see what happens here in this, what I would say is becoming one of the major religions of the United States and of Western Europe as we speak? It maintains the vocabulary of classic Christianity, but drains those words of all true meaning. The God is not the majestic, infinite God of the Bible. He is the senile old grandfather in heaven that wants you to have a lot of fun. The God is not the God who has instructions and is concerned about the way you live every moment of every day, but is only there for when we get in trouble. And of course, We all go to heaven when we die if we're good. And for many people who believe this, most people are quite good enough. I would say in our day, there's also another take on religion that fits the the, uh, model of Jeroboam's religion a little bit. And it's what has been labeled progressive Christianity. Now, some people who hold to progressive Christianity are unashamed to use that term that they boast in it. They like it. it. It feels modern and helpful and useful and not fuddy-duddy and overly traditional and outdated. Other people may not use the term, but they believe it. If you walk into a Christian church today that is of the theologically liberal persuasion, generally progressive Christianity is what you will find. And progressive Christianity looks like this. It uses emotive words. You'll hear talk of redemption and reconciling and atonement. But these words have a different meaning than they mean in the Bible. When liberal Christianity, progressive Christianity talks about faith, it often means, in fact, I would say it usually means a religious feeling, a a sense inside of God and things spiritual. It's vague and amorphous. When people talk about discipleship, they generally mean something like learning to be good to others to be kind to others. Um, When progressive Christianity talks about the cross, the cross is a symbol that Jesus loves us, not that Jesus had to suffer God's wrath to pay for our transgressions. When resurrection is talked about, I remember back when I was recovering from knee surgery and I was listening to a Easter service online. Um, I, I just went to I can't remember what I typed in, but I got a a massive church somewhere in Texas, and the the pastor was preaching. She had a a good sermon in the sense that she was well-spoken. She was easy to listen to. She had a text from the Bible. They read about the resurrection of Jesus, and then she spoke about the resurrection. And isn't it great that what Easter is all about is that all of us have little deaths that happen to us all the time. Your boyfriend breaks up with you. You don't get the job you wanted. Your new car gets wrecked. But what happens is that God somehow redeems those moments. And now there are little resurrections in our lives all the time as people are kind to each other, as God is nice to us, 
as things turn around for the good that we're going badly. You see what's happening there. It's, it's the use of Christian terminology for anything but Christian truths. In progressive Christianity, I would say in general, there is forgiveness without repentance. There is heaven without hell. All this is a different religion from Christianity. It's why 100 years ago this year, J. Gresham Machen, the founder of Westminster Seminary and of the Orthodox Presbyterian denomination, wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism because he was proposing that Christianity and liberal Christianity are two different religions. That's the idea. Couching the old, familiar vocabulary um, with new ideas. Now, all the above that we've been talking about, and of course there are small exceptions to everything you say, people who, who don't quite fit that bill, but that's the general sweep of things. Um, all the above, we might say, what it has in common with Jeroboam is that it is self-invented religion. If you go back and read through our passage, it's what Jeremiah, Jeroboam did from his own mind, what he did, what he made. Um, some decades ago, Charles Coulson um, told about uh, a man who wrote the following. Um, the, the, this man was interviewing various people about their religious views, and he came to a woman named Sheila. He asked what her views were about religion. She said, and what she described, as I recall, was she took a little bit of that, a, a little doctrine from here, a little idea from there, a little dogma from this source, a little notion from this religion, a little um, uh, life practice from this philosophy, and cobbled them together. And she said, my religion, her name was Sheila, did I say? My religion, I call it Sheilaism. Well, this is where we are tempted to go today. We are tempted to look at the Bible. Such and such passages make me comfortable. I believe them. Other passages make me uncomfortable. I don't believe them. Some passages are hard to understand. I might believe them. I might not. I'll reserve judgment for later. I'm just not so sure. And therefore, we take scissors to the Bible. It's the easiest thing to do. It's easy to do as a Christian to, to take passages that are difficult and just shy away from them and whatnot. But if you shy away from the core passages, it leads one to destruction. So here's how this story ends. Well, we're going to see next time we're together where it leads and where it goes. But something that the book of Second Chronicles talks about that covers the same story from a little bit different angle that is wonderful. It's from Second Chronicles 11. And here's what it says happened. In verse 13, 11 of 13, I'm sorry, verse 13 and following, it says, when the priests and the Levites, remember who they were, the people that God had said should be priests, when the priests and the Levites from all their districts throughout Israel saw what happened, they sided with Rehoboam, the king of the south. The Levites even abandoned. Remember, these are Levites up in the north now. The Levites abandoned their pasture land and their property, and they came south to Jerusalem and to Judah because Jeroboam had rejected them as priests of the Lord. And then not only did priests do this, but godly people all over the country, says those from every tribe of Israel who set their hearts on seeking the Lord God of Israel, followed the Levites to Jerusalem to offer sacrifice to Jehovah, the God of their fathers. You see what it's saying? Here are people who have a home 
that maybe their father owned and their grandfather owned and their great-father owned. Here are people who have a business that they've cultivated over the course of a lifetime. Here are people who have relatives and family and friends and neighbors that they enjoy, but they are not prepared to follow the religious direction of their new country. And so making huge sacrifices, they leave all and they come to the South for one reason only. It's not to get a better suntan. It's to worship the one true God of the universe. And that's what we're about to do right now as we take the Lord's Supper. Would the ushers come forward, please?
It was your pastor making a mistake. (laughs) Jesus Christ's body, ruined and bloodied, pierced and broken for you. Eat and be grateful. If there is any part of Christianity that is offensive to many people today, it is the constant mention of his blood, the violent death that he needed to undergo in order for us to be received into heaven joyfully. I hope that no one here who takes this cup is ashamed that it stands for the blood of Jesus Christ that washes away our sins. understand it will probably be tough to hold a hymnal right now, but 172, I think it will be projected. Let's sing together. And can we stand?
just before the benediction, right after the service, in the room just below us, is a welcome lunch. Whether you're visiting for the first time or have been around for a while, but would like to get to know people, become a little more familiar with our church, you're welcome to come. Children are welcome, older people are welcome, your whole family and friends that you're here with are welcome today. We really hope you will come if you're fairly new to us. Hear the benediction. Now to him who washed us with his blood and saved us through the crushing of his body, be honor and praise, not just with our lips, but with how we live this week. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.